Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Forging the Path. My name is not Adam, but boy, my voice sure does sound like his. Come on. <laughs> All right, well, there's your welcome and your intro, everybody. Um, that was my brother, Ethan, uh, my youngest brother. I have a brother named Ben and a brother named Ethan. I'm the oldest, but they are by far smarter. Um, I'm really, like, I'm super, super excited for this. Um, Ethan, uh, like I said, he's my younger brother. He lives just up the road. Beautiful wife, amazing new baby. Love them to death. Amen. <laughs> and Ethan is, this is going to be exciting. Ethan's listened to so many of our episodes. He's a big fan. Uh, he's got a gift of encouraging people, inspiring people. And yes, our voices sound strikingly similar. So you're going to have to just deal with that. We'll try our best. I was joking with Claire earlier, like I should just EQ his voice really wonky. <laughs> so everyone can like make it sound really high pitched and nasally or something like that. Nah, I won't do that to you, bro. <laughs> anyway, um, yes, this is Forging the Path. This is a podcast that's really all about helping men become the kind of men that God created us to be. But our our audience is widespread. And uh, thank you, everyone who's listened. I want you to know this podcast is free. I'm going to keep it free. But the way you can help out, the way you can quote unquote pay for this, if you're getting any sort of encouragement or inspiration or education from it, is share it with a friend. You can do that on social media. You can text it to somebody. You can word of mouth. Any of that would be greatly appreciated. We're looking in the next few weeks to uh, to expand, to uh, really bring on some sponsorship and uh, hopefully get the website and even a YouTube channel going here soon. So your support means the world to us. Today, we're going to talk about a wide range of things, and actually, we're going to turn this into a two-part episode, Adam and Ethan. So we got some fun stuff coming at you. The first thing I want to do as I intro my brother, Ethan, is this This is kind of the background. Ethan and Ben, my two younger brothers, have differences of opinion than I do, um, which is fun. We always have really engaging, stimulating conversations. Um, Ethan... Up until just a couple years ago, you were, you had a very different outlook on the world. You had a very different worldview. Can you give us a few minute overview of what changed just a couple years ago, two, three, four years ago for you and how you walked through that? Oh yeah, sure. So uh, yeah, I'll just skip over childhood. It's uh, it's a lot like yours too, to some degree. So we grew up in a uh, Lutheran church and we were, at least for me, I was kind of like a uh, the Bart Simpson mentality, like I went to church every week, but I really hated it, and I can joke about how I hated it. But deep down, I knew it was like really important too. So it was kind of this love-hate relationship. But I was a kid and didn't really think too much of it. Um, you and Ben had incredible life-changing events occur when I was just coming of age, becoming a teenager. Um, we had some uh, some big family events. Um, occur at this time too. And anyways, I decided right around the age of 13, like, oh shoot, this God thing is real. Whoa, man, like all this stuff I've been learning about in school. We went to a different church. We became um, non-denominational essentially. And uh, I, I spent my teen years at, like really trying to take it seriously as, as much as a teenager could. Um, listening to Pastor Shane holding tapes while playing video games, bopping around to various youth groups. I was the head of FCA. Um, I, was, I was really trying to put my money where 
my mouth was. Um, I, I think like it's probably not an exaggeration to say I converted people. I was a leader on the the uh, the campus crusade thing my uh, my freshman year. I was a fire seed for the TCX conference. I handed out tracks uh, to people on the street. I was really doing the thing. Um, and then at about twenty, I had some concerns with what I might just generally summarize as the inerrancy of scripture. I got to know the Bible pretty well, um, and I got to know it to a point where I had some real issues with it. Um, And it was a gradual process, probably two to three years, but my theology changed relatively rapidly in a course of just a couple of years. Uh, And I spent the next decade as what I always called atheist, but I think a more proper definition was probably agnostic. Um, I was was kind of a smart aleck with all things religion. I thought that I had a right to, you know, I did this thing. Man, who knows what kind of childhood I might have had without it. I have a right to slander it, so there. Um, But it really wasn't too sophisticated beyond that. Um, In 2020... Obviously, the world was shifting dramatically. Um, you could feel it all around. You can still feel it. The, 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 at least in the West, we're in a huge rift. I think, I think the, the, the fruit of the Industrial Revolution and the Enlightenment are still coming to bear. The fruit of globalization, we don't know who we are anymore. It's, it's rapidly evolving. This is true in a political sense. This is true in a physical sense. It's, uh, as I'll speak on probably numerous times throughout the, uh, the, the episode here, I think the deepest truth are usually paradoxical, but even more usually fractal in nature. We see repetitions, we see recapitulations on multiple levels of existence, and you could feel all of that going on, obviously, during COVID. COVID was so much more than COVID. COVID was COVID plus. COVID was shaking out the rug, and all these other things came out underneath it, too. There's one event I'll draw attention to where I was at a, I was during quarantine and I was at a, a hangout, which I had very few of during a quarantine, of course. I was taking it very seriously. I was, I was your standard, let's say, maybe dirtbag leftist. Like, <laughs> well, and you were living in Chicago. I at was the in time. Chicago yeah. at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was, uh, I was definitely uh, what I would have called myself a, a socialist. I was very into the economic theory behind the politics. Um, I never glommed on entirely to the social justice movement, but I did glom on a little bit. So, I mean, run-of-the-mill, like, former Christian, like, millennial atheist, I guess. I'm at this hangout with a, with a good, trusted friend who, if, if he says something to me, I, I really, I, I consider it. And I was making some off-the-cuff joke about uh, religion towards the end of the night. I, you know, I only smoke cigarettes a few times a year, but it's usually with him, and I'm taking a drag of the cigarette, and I'm like, blah, 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 punchline is religion, ha, ha, right? And he goes, oh, really, dude? And he likes, like, just kind of gets a little serious for a moment. And he's like, oh, you're the most religious person I know. <laughs> and I just break out laughing because I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like, he knows a little bit about my past, but he doesn't, like, know my past. You know what I mean? And it, it, sometimes you get those comments. Usually they're, I mean, sometimes they're painful. Sometimes they're really real. Mm. And sometimes they're lighthearted. That was thankfully a lighthearted one that, that, that cut kind of deep. Mm. And I, my, the wheels in my head just started turning. I'm like, what does that mean? What does mm. that mean? And it, to my surprise, it was actually fun to think about. And so I, I think my, my snow globe in my mind was already shaking throughout this whole COVID experience, little by little. And to think that one of the rocks that would get turned over would be religion was an interesting one. So I've spent the next, going on four years now, um, I, you know, re- rereading the Bible, um, reading more casually, because I'm not as familiar with it, but other religious texts too. Uh, the Tao Te Ching several times, just bits and pieces of uh, some of the Hindu Vedas. I'm about halfway through the Quran, but 
Christianity was home to me. It still is home to me. And in a sense, it always will be. So I, I really gravitate towards the biblical text. I get so much out of it. And it, it has come alive in a way I, I never expected. It's made me rethink all sorts of, I mean, it, if, if leaving Christianity was an identity crisis, leaving whatever I was then, let's call it just stereotypical millennial leftist, has also been an identity crisis. And I'm in a very confusing middle ground where I really don't have a label that suits me right now. I, I've got friends and family on all sides of the aisle, and I actually see a lot of the points going both ways. I have certain issues and topics and even maybe cultural trends that I definitely side on one more than the other, but honestly, that can vary from topic to topic. So I, I'm now, yeah, I'm in this middle ground, and maybe this is where I'll just wrap up here, where um, religion has come alive. I, I think I threw the baby out with the bathwater, and I'm re-exploring it in a way that has been incredibly satisfying, deeply curious, and intellectually stimulating. And you've been an excellent conversation partner um, over the last two years, let's say, where I finally felt comfortable pitching you some some of these ideas, yeah, and yeah. and we, we'll we'll just go on for hours talking about different things. Even today, if we ever hit a law, like, dude, I could I could ask. You, I got five on the docket right now. Like, I'd love to hear your thoughts on like this chapter, this verse. What's going on here? Yeah. Hey, don't you see that mapped onto over here? You know, like, hey, man, the 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 trumpet, the pitcher, and the and the the torch from. Gideon, isn't that, does that have a parallel to Revelation? You know, the trumpets mm-hmm. and the lampstands? Like, I think there's something there. As an example, we could go on yeah. so many riffs like that. Like, I think it's really psychologically meaningful because I think, I think to be human is to be conscious, and to be conscious is to be in this middle ground between God and animal. And that's exactly what religion is. It's a framework to to deal with that dissonance. It's to it's to be to, it's to know perfection, to conceive of it, be unable to attain it at the same time. It's it's to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's to it's to be outside of the garden. And here we are wrestling with this thing. And we just Chesterton fenced it all. And we're like, nah, religion don't need it. Now nah, we have electricity. Now we're good. And here we are, like, oh God, what was under that fence? Yeah, a lot of stuff, man. So uh-huh. so anyways, I I went on for a bit there. Where do you want to go from here? Well, tell me more about your rereading of the Bible. Um, you, you've got a great outline here that you sent me. You've got reread the Bible, uh, fascination with the patterns, how, not why, why is unknowable, and what is your response to the miserable, confusing tragedy of life? Those are your four bullet points under this section. So pick pick one or two of your favorites and let's jump in. Let's start with the punchline. I was trying to answer that question that my buddy sent me when he said, it wasn't a question, it was a statement that made me ask questions. You're the most religious person I know. What did he mean by that? What does that mean? What is religion? You can etymologize it and you can say, oh yeah, it's bridging the gap between God and man. I think that's, that's useful. You could look at Webster's and be like, oh yeah, it's a set of beliefs usually pertaining to the afterlife that one holds to steadfastly. Okay, sure. I think a more creative definition that actually answers it more holistically is is just that I think we are all being asked if we're real I think the Buddhists are right I think to live is to suffer as I mentioned I think the sure. the Genesis background to be conscious is to is to suffer it's to grapple with these things it's to be a little lower than the angels but not quite at their level you know we're we're stuck here in this stratosphere somewhere in between the 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 psychological abyss of earth with the the, the dark waters underneath the firmament and then there up in the sky where the light God reigns and, and illuminates us with consciousness. Our logos is trapped in between. And it's a it's a paralyzing, torturous place to be, and we need an answer to that. Uh, and if you're not, it's... It really, 
Well, anyways, I'll stick to it. So I, I, I consolidate it by saying this, like life is asking us this question. Consciousness is begging it of us. What is your response to the miserable, confusing tragedy of life? Yeah. If you poo poo it away and say like, nah, life's great. Like life's a beach. Like, no, it's not. You're going to get, you're going to get crushed. You just haven't yet. You probably will several times over. Yeah. Um, and if you just stick in that and you say, yeah, everything's awful. I'm going to go with the nihilism, right? Well, cool. You might get, you might get some like superficial truth points because, man, that feels really true. I think there are more levels to truth, though, and I think you can overcome it in a different, if in a different frame of mind. But that's not to belittle that because the nihilists have a point. It's something to contend with. So then what do we answer? What is your response to the miserable, confusing tragedy of life? You know, there's that Ziggy Marley song. Love is my religion. I think that's a valid answer. Mm -hmm. Maybe for some. You could pick anything here. Some low-hanging fruit. Maybe status is my religion. Maybe sex is my religion to some. Maybe fame, you know. Um, Maybe um, I want to be a good role model to fill in the blank. You can find a lot of meaning there. And maybe there's an overarching theme that actually connects all of those specific examples there but when i thought of religion in that way it started to it started to become more accessible to me mm-hmm. it wasn't just a fairy tale that started with some oral tradition and well look at me and how smart i am now because i know euclidean geometry so my iq is so much higher than these stupid greeks not quite they invented that stuff come on now so um yeah that that is how i've been framing religion and that has kind of been a key that's allowed me to unlock some of more of these texts. It's been humbling. Yeah. It's been a way for me to look at these things and say, no, nah, these aren't just stupid, like Neanderthalic barbarians from the past. Yeah. I think they were wrestling with the same questions we are. They were wrestling with them more closely. They were slightly, I would argue, a different species in a different time. And I think more than us evolving on from them into something better, I think we've given up something. We've we've sort of gotten lazy in the ring. I think life could be analogized as maybe this this combat ring, this octagon, this UFC battleground, and your religion is your fighting style. And when we just throw that out, well, we better hope we don't have any contenders come our way because we're going to get knocked out fast. So uh, how do we answer that question? Well, yeah. So, okay. Let me, there's a couple of things there that come to my mind. Uh, do you think that this might be a softball do you think that our technological advancements, post-industrial revolution, post-modernity, here we are, we have comfort and convenience that ancestors would never even have dreamed of. The level of suffering that we have today compared to any other time in human history, at least in first world culture right now, uh, like it's so minimal, so minimal. There is so... There are so few people waking up in America today thinking, like, where's my next meal coming from? Where am I going to sleep tonight? How am I going to face my enemies? How am I going to survive today? Whereas for thousands of years, that's how many people did face their day to day. Do you think that that has... Is that is that a blessing and a curse? Obvious softball. Yeah, yeah, right? uh, yeah. No, I'll, t- I'll take that. And how has that shaped our understanding of just these big questions that you're talking about we it can't be overstated we are yes blessings and curses right and uh the the progressivist view of history that everything has just gotten better oh man look at this next year's better than this one this century's better than the last one um we just take that for granted because the 
the Faustian liberal philosophy really could be, it could be titled a religion. It is the religion of our day. It's not, it, it is atheism in a sense, but it's broader than that. It's the water in which we swim. It's the air we breathe. We're, 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 all, subs, we're all students of this philosophy and we don't even know it. So yeah, it's steeped in the water to just assume everything's good and great. Um, now there's a, there's a, you know, reflexive reaction that can be say everything's awful we just need to take down the power grid and while that would reconnect us with god instantly it would also kill almost all of us so (laughs) we have a little wisdom here but yes it it can't be overstated the industrial revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race that's the opening line from ted kaczynski in his manifesto and he's completely right and uh we can't every Every day I wake up and realize how preposterous everything is. This I had this epiphany about a year ago. I'm sitting in my chair. I work from home because I have an excellent work from home job that I am so grateful for. And I have I have won the human competition. I've got a good job. It's a comfortable job. I sit at home and look out a window. How great that I don't have to do back-breaking labor. And I was sitting there and I'm like, this is my life. I'm going to sit in this chair, you know, barring any hiccups in the plan here, for the next three and a half decades. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna look out this window and I'm just gonna get bad posture, hurt my back a little bit, and like go to sleep and wake up and pour water out of a magical metal pipe in my house. And uh, that's awesome. And I'm never gonna be warm and I'm never gonna be cold. And make plenty enough money mm-hmm. to pay for everything you want and need. It occurred to me that I'm, I'm, I wake up and I stare at this screen so I can get this fake light shooting in my eyes for an for a number of hours so that when I look at my other fake screen in my pocket and those fake lights stare at me in the eyes, I can see imaginary digits on my bank account go up to some imaginary number that I deem good enough and hopefully those numbers keep dialing up enough, numbers that I'll never actually see or access. They're completely imaginary. And then and then here's the best part. Some other strangers I will never meet and never know are going to ring some bells halfway across the country in New York every day at nine, 9 to 5. And then depending on how those bells ring, my digits are going to go up even higher so that in three and a half decades when I press some buttons on my imaginary phone and then I, 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 I talk over the line to some stranger again I'll never meet and they say, yep, now's the time to pull the trigger. Then I'm going to press some buttons. I'm going to sign some paperwork. It's going to go to some place I'll never visit. And then my imaginary digits will be even more released to me. And I'll say, yep, I did it. You won. I did it. I played the digits game, the imaginary fake screen game. And it just occurred to me like this, what other animal, man? This is crazy. I I look out the window and I see these cars driving by. And I'm like, this is what I'm doing is as preposterous as a dog driving these cars. And it's like this dog being like Homer Simpson style, gas brake honk, gas brake honk. Oh, and the dog, here's the best part. The dog's not even enjoying it. I'm sitting at work and most of us don't want to be there. And we're like stressing about like this fake deadline for some stranger we're never going to meet. And the absurdity of it all. I, I go on a run two years ago, I'm a year and a half. I'm, I'm going up North Shore Drive right by my house in Heartland. I'm looking east towards Waukesha and there's this alien glow over the sky. It's winter. It's a cloudy sky. And uh, there are no stars. I can't even see the clouds. It's all just this gray and then a lighter shade of gray. And I'm like, you know what? None of my kids are ever going to see the stars again. And none of us have seen the stars unless we took some like very out of the way trip in the yeah. last few years yeah. for several generations. It's been this way for about a hundred. Like, nobody voted on that. Like humanity just decided as it's like collective unconscious, this over spirit egregore that we've become, we just unconsciously decided now nah, we're good with the stars. Yo, no more. We're just going to see this fake alien glow forever. 
So, in, I mean, we, we, I mean, we, we could get, I mean, to get really poignant, we've got birth control pills in our water supply. You know what I mean? Like our hormones are off. You've talked about yep. testosterone levels. Yep. Like we are a different species. Testosterone's plummeting in the last it's crazy. 20 years. Plummeting in the last 20 years. It's so sad. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I'll put a pin in it there because otherwise I'll just keep going. But yes, it's a blessing and a curse. It's a totally different world. We live in a different universe. I'll end with this for this section here. What if someday we actually do go to Mars, Elon gets his wish. Those humans are going to be there and there's going to be something inside of them that says, wait a minute, I remember what oxygen tasted like. I don't actually, there's something in there. It's this unconscious barrier. We can't pass it. But there are these gateways. There are these gate. Music is this gateway. Art is this gateway. Intuition is this gateway. Clairvoyance, serendipity. You could throw in prophecy. You could throw in the psychedelic experience, dreams, benign memories. We have this access to this unconscious realm, and it's not small, it's huge, it's bigger than our ego. But we only catch these glimpses of it. We go to Mars, our unconscious is going to cry out to us and say, this isn't home. We're feeling that too. Mm. Right now, here on Earth. All right, well, so... (laughs) Hey, ladies and gentlemen, you're getting a taste of... uh what the conversations around the fire sound like when the Zastros get together. <laughs> hey, Ethan, what gives you hope then? I mean, coming from the worldview that you're coming with and sharing some of the story that you've lived through, especially over the last couple of years, a lot of what you said there can sound deflating and even depressing. What, where, 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 where does your desire to get up the next day and keep pushing forward and yeah, like finding the stars again? Like mm-hmm. metaphorically speaking, what, how do you do that? How does a guy like you do that? And what advice do you give to people out there in the audience? There's probably at least a couple that are listening like, man, I feel that. Yeah, that like the weight of what you're talking about. I'm looking at my fake screen all day. I'm seeing digits. I'm trying to play the digits game. And then I look at my other fake screen mm-hmm. and this is life and my back hurts and what are you going to do about it? And the bills need to be paid. And let's look at a, another fake screen for entertainment. Now yep. that work is done, we can look at a bigger fake screen and Netflix, right? There's, there are many people out there that are like, they've analyzed that approach and they're somewhat discouraged. They're feeling what you just said. Now what? Advice. Oh, how, do you, how do you find hope? And what advice do you give to the people out there who are like, I get it, man. I totally get that. Friedrich Nietzsche, the prophet of our day, who gets more right every single minute. He, he if, if you're not aware, he um, sadly, he, he was a harsh critic of Christianity, make no mistake. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of my audience is Christians and they, yep. only, they only know, now I pronounce his name wrong, Nietzsche, but how do you say it? Nietzsche. Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche. Yep. Because they, they, he said, God is dead. And yep. so, so a lot of evangelical Christians are like, oh, he's a bad man. Um, he, he had some things to say that we misunderstand, yeah. actually, that are, that are pretty, I would say, uh, constructive criticism, if, you'll, if yes. you'll see it that way. Yes. I if, don't think he hated Christians. No. So elaborate. Okay. He said a few things. He said there was one true Christian and they crucified him. He also said a man with a how, I'm sorry, a man with a why can survive almost any how 
And that is how I'm going to answer your question. To, to round out the death of God, yes, it's you can almost picture him Jeremiah style with tears in his eyes proclaiming the death of God. He, he said there wouldn't be enough water on earth or rags to clean up the blood. He said that we are becoming more, less, we have less and less religion in the world. But interestingly, he said we're becoming more and more religious. And so I think that has application today's way wow. as well. Yeah. 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 So he make no mistake, he has scathing remarks for Christianity. In some components, I do think it's a bit of a straw man, but I, I would challenge the Christian if you're up for it, because I mean, this is like some shadow work. This could be painful. But if, if you're up for it, look into his critiques on Christianity. It is something to contend with. That's not saying there isn't an answer or a rebuttal, but yeah, it's interesting. So he was a critic, but it, his his proclamation was not victorious. It was with tears in his eyes saying, we've opened Pandora's box. We have Promethean fire. You have no idea what you've do, just done. Yeah. Because if we don't have a value system in place, God was our ultimate value. Christ was seated at the self. If we don't have that, anything could be in its place. Yeah. You have, uh, you know, Dostoevsky famously predicting the Soviet Union decades before in the same sort of vein, coming at it from a Christian. Fr- he was a Christian, yeah. coming at it from a Christian. But all of this was sort of in the milieu, and it's it's becoming more popular in the zeitgeist now. And I think, you know, we're just late to the party. They saw it 150 years ago, and now we're like, oh, gosh, they were right. But hey, such is the work of prophets. Yeah. So getting on to his quote. A man with a why can survive almost any how. I, I think that's real. You got to have meaning. Where do you find meaning? That's an interesting question. I will also bring up uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Good book, mm-hmm. short book. Probably he's pretty the, popular. He's the Holocaust survivor, right? Holocaust yeah, survivor yeah. turns turned, uh, turned psychologist, maybe psychiatrist too. Anyways, yeah. he had a, his idea was logotherapy. And it's, it's essentially that. It's the Nietzsche quote. It's you got to find a meaning. I want to share a, a cool anecdote. If you never read the book, that's okay. Honestly, the whole book could be some summarized in this anecdote. This is the whole point for, for the book. This is all I got out of it, and it was still worth it, and then some. Yeah. Victor Frankl, he's a, he's a psychologist. He brings in this, uh, this elderly patient. Man lost his wife, his life for his whole life, his best friend, companion, romantic soulmate, all that jazz. Loses his wife, and he goes, you know, Doc, I got nothing. I'd rather be dead. How tr- You can't even blame him. What, what, mm. What's he got on that? He probably has lost all his friends, too. Mm-hmm. What's he living for? Victor Frankl turns it on him. He says, so you lost your wife. She went first, huh? He goes, yeah, and I'm broken. How great that you get to bear this instead of her. And he goes, oh, you're right. Gets a smile on his face. He's like, I wouldn't want her to suffer through this. I'm doing this for her. Uh, I'm still here. Yeah. That's how we do it. Okay. We come up with that in every facet of our life. What are we doing here? What, how are the nihilists wrong? Because maybe they're not. Well, hold on a minute. Let's go find that meaning. What are we doing this for? Yeah. I think that's the answer. So find a meaning. Can the, do you think the meaning can be different from one person to the next? Yeah, for sure. We're kind of wandering into the realm of like, is, is there an absolute truth meaning that right. would be wise of us to all look at and hold on to and remind ourselves of? Or is it like, hey, man, that's cool. That's your truth. I'm going to go find my truth. As long as we find some kind of why, that's good enough. That is the culture war, isn't it? Thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the culture war is real. And I think it's taking place not just in a physical realm, but primarily in a metaphysical realm. I think that we have, I already mentioned this unconscious realm that I will codename the spiritual realm. I think they are one and the same. And let me show you, this is something interesting I just learned this week. Shout out to my buddy Lucas for, for passing this on to me. It's from some book, Citation Needed, but bear with me. Okay. Um, we can measure 
the electricity of the human heart from up to six feet away. Oh. Okay, here's another one for you. Rupert Sheldrake, he's a controversial researcher. Um, the mainstream pegs him as a, you know not supplying enough evidence, but I like what he's saying. And even if it's not empirically true, I think we're on the edge of empiricism anyway. So mm. I think we got to contend with some of this stuff. Considering that two years ago, the Nobel Prize winner is someone who contended that a particle can be in two places at once. Considering that the double slit experiment now shows that particles can travel through time based on if we observe them or not. I mean, the realm of science has become the realm of religion. Uh-huh. We are in crazy territory. And Young, someone I'm sure who will come up later, he, 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 an interest of his towards the end of his life was quantum, quantum mechanics. And you can see why. Mm. Because these things, you know, they're not opposites. In fact, I think they layer on top of each other really nicely. And I think what we need is a dialectic between rationalism and spiritualism. We need to, we need to take our animal impulses and our God impulses and we need, to, we need to unify them. We're meant to be in between the two. The, the symbol of the cross is powerful in so many ways. It's not just that we've put our role model up on, up on this symbol. It's also a quaternity. He sits in, in the middle of an axis, in fact, two of them, X and Y. He sits in between God and ground, heaven and earth. He's fully God, fully man. Y- you notice even in the Greek religions, the heroes, they're not the gods. It's the God-human hybrid that we have to look up to. Yeah, it's Hercules. The, the demigod, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's curious. Why? And, and again, I, I'm not to, I don't mean to preach a universalist message here. I'm not going to go that route. I don't even subscribe to that route. But I do notice that there is this pattern, almost this Mars Hill-esque pattern. You can find a scriptural basis with Paul in Athens when he says, hey, you know, I think you're wrong. But I'm not going to start by saying this is all wrong. You're actually onto something here. We've got some common ground. And so I'm trying to take that approach, if the, if the Christian will indulge me, to say, like, even if you broaden this horizon, there's this massive story being played over very coincidentally all over the world from different worldviews. So when you talk about competing values, oh, wait, I want to say one more thing about the symbol of the cross. Yeah, go for this it. is neglected. It's not just the... the um, the vertical axis that that our role model yes now notice there are three people in one account right and there's the there's the repentant sinner and the unrepentant sinner and one of them gets mercy and one of them gets justice think about that like you are perfectly situated in this quaternity four is a very important number three is an important number it shows up all over in in different religions you Mm -hmm. see in hinduism there are actually three gods depending on the hindu you ask one is a creator one's a preserver one's a destroyer now the middle one is actually said to have reincarnated himself on earth. Tell me if that sounds familiar. There's this pattern, man. There's this unmistakable pattern that all of our ancestors have been writing out. Why? It's mysterious. I don't think they knew that they were doing it. I don't think they sat down together and said, let's make it three. No, 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 no. Let's make it four. You know, like it spawned out of us in this oral tradition. It almost built itself. So you know, I, I took a jab at biblical inerrancy, but let me give give a lot of points in the bucket of biblical inspiration because I actually do subscribe to that. And I never thought I'd say that <laughs> after the man I was. Yeah, there was a time I never thought you'd say I, that either. Yeah, I'm, I, it's <laughs> the pattern's unmistakable, man. It's For sure. it, it's bizarre. Um, Gideon and his and his three hundred men. Where have you heard a story like that before? Mm. Sparta, anyone? Like that's mm. odd. Now I'm not. You take one of these and you're like, that's preposterous. You're just stringing, you know, tape and rubber bands together in your basement on a bulletin board. But you layer these up by the dozens, by the hundreds, and you're like, wow, wow. Th- this can't just be poo pooed away. All right. So we yeah. have competing values. Back to your point. Thanks for indulging me in the tangents. Yeah, yeah. Nice. That's a good. That's a good bunny trail. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, lots of bunny trails. Um, 
we we have this spiritual realm, and I think it's connected. You can um, I mentioned that Rupert Sheldrake guy with the with the morphic resonance, but I didn't tell you his experiment. He he. He took this experiment, put people behind walls, no visibility, and he had some look at someone in a room and some look away from a person in a room. Mm-hmm. And to a statistically significant amount, now this isn't you know earth shattering, but it's over 50%, it was in the low 50s, the test subject could sense when they're being looked at. Okay. Like we have empirical data that says we're connected in ways we don't understand. Just more than half the time they were right. Just more than half the time, yeah. Okay. There's this intuition. You can measure it. He did experiments with other animals too. To briefly summarize, he would take, for example, mice in one location, mice in another location, and he would put them through random mazes and measure their times. And sure enough, they were going through these mazes at roughly similar times. Then what he would do is he would put group A through a maze before putting group B through a maze. They're in separate locations. Group A would get familiar with the maze. Group B would have a faster time after Group A had done it, even though they're in separate locations. This is, it's it's witchcraft, man. It's sorcery. It's as if Group A was telepathically communicating with Group B, saying like, oh, wait, I've seen this before. Go right, not left. Mm. You could measure it. He would do this with carrier pigeons too. Bananas. Bananas. Now maybe it's maybe it's bogus. I don't know. But you, you get a bunch of these things. You hear story after story of these these weird, oh man, that person was just gonna call me. I was thinking about them, and then my phone lit up and it was their name. And they called. Yeah. It's all that maybe it's just anecdata. I don't know. I think it's a lot to consider. So I we have these we have these spirits. These spirits are connected. We have this unconscious realm. This Jung would argue, he takes it a step further, and this is the foundation on which his psychology is based. He said, in this realm, there are things that aren't us. There are living things that aren't us, that influence us. Your thoughts are not your own. Your dreams are not your own. Emotions are not your own. The Greeks were just more to the point. They would just say, yeah, you get possessed by gods. You know, Romans, the Romans said veritas, truth is a being. It's not an abstract concept. It's a being. You got inspired by truth, inspiration. Uh, Interestingly, we call alcohol spirits. They move us. They possess us. You can etymologize a lot of these things and find some very interesting patterns. In the collective unconscious, what we do there connects with others as as well. And we have these over-spirits. These uh, the egregore, if you will, and I, you know, what you put out in your own world is going to influence others. Maybe in a weird, magical way, like I'm describing, but much more practically, just in a common way too. You get your house in order, then get someone else's house in order. How do you do that? I don't know. Start with the people you share blood with, then move on to the people you share a house with and, and food with, and then move on to the people you share land with. Something like that, and you you can't accomplish that by the time you're done living. But these things impact each other. So to summarize. Yeah, you feel these competing values. It's in our souls and it's in the collective soul too. It's like there's a game of risk being played and and the army men, what they really represent is each over spirit. This is legitimate spiritual warfare and the gods are battling and who's gonna be put on top. And we feel now that our God, I think Nietzsche was right. I think God's been dying for about 150 years. I think it took us this long to finally wake up to it. Only now are you starting to see the real apostasy. You had maybe tacit fake apostasy 150 years ago, but now it's 
it's like, oh no, it's it's legitimate and it doesn't take much. And now we're seeing this this battle for the throne. And I think a lot of people, if if I am to be representative of any person, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm just an oddball, but if there are others like me out there. There's a lot of oddballs out there, that's okay. If you're, you're representative of the collective oddball. I hope so, I hope so. Then I think what, what they're doing is they're looking at this and they're saying, man, we had this God we thought was evil, fake, and dumb, but now we just realized this even more evil, even dumber, even faker God has sit on the throne and we're not happy about it. Yeah. We're like, what's going on here? And so, you know, some people will just run back to religion. Maybe that's what I'm doing and I just don't want to admit it. But I, I, my, my subjective experience is that I'm trying to take a survey of this and I'm asking myself a lot of questions. And I, I think there's, there's a path forward here. There's something really real going on and I'm trying to work it out. And I hope, I hope that the right God wins. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk all about that, Ethan. It's so funny. It's it's a very different conversation than we've had three, four, five years ago. Oh yeah, um, you're you're in just a very different place, but you're you're speaking with the same energy and passion. So you still didn't quite give me that. Like, what's your why, man? What what? Oh, for what's me? your why? Yeah, what's your why? And what would you ask other people to? What would you advise to to consider as a why? It's hard to beat progeny as a top one. I mean a wife and a family. I don't know how you beat that. Um, that's the most practical, palpable, tangible one. There are a lot of people who don't have that. So what do I say to them? It's easy to give some low hanging fruit. I know later on, we're going to talk about fitness and I'm so excited to tell you about meaningful ways that you can just make life better. Yeah. And you'll find that meaning invents itself when you're healthy. Uh, you know, going back to Nietzsche, you could argue that he's sort of the father of vitalism. Like, in addition to inventing our own values, he said, like, we got to be healthy. Like, and he didn't pull any punches. I mean, it, eugenicists based a lot of their inspirations off of his work. Not to say that Nietzsche was a eugenicist, but there's something there. There's something about health there. Um, but you raise a good question, and I'm, I'm, I'm pausing because I don't have a, a perfect answer that I want to put my name behind right now as to someone who, say, doesn't have progeny. Um, but I think it starts with... I think it starts with the journey. Yeah. I think it starts with asking yourself, what do I care about? And finding something that actually sticks to the wall. I would encourage anyone who's in this space not to glom on to a quick replacement for what religion used to hold the place of. We often see this in politics. We see it in something else. I would encourage you to try and find something that holds the weight of truth and that holds the weight of goodness. And just to round out the uh, the Greek Trinity, there I'll throw in beauty as well, uh, because beauty, like I mentioned, art as a key to the to the to the spiritual the realm. Three Greek virtues, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. I think all three of those are a passageway into the unconscious realm, and I think I think we're going to find our answer in the unconscious. But for very simple, practical means, I would say find some people that you want to be responsible for, and selflessly make your life be make their lives better as much as you can. In addition to healthily improving your own, yeah. That's been, that's been uh, a fight that we're losing in our culture the last several decades, right? I mean, the, yeah. the 60s cultural sexual revolution did a dent on healthy family. Then the, then the 80s divorce rates were just crazy, you know, yep. throwing the 70s drug usage. And yep. The 80s divorce rate and then uh, the 90s. Every other sitcom is, you know, a, a bum, goofball, deadbeat dad. You know, show me a 90s sitcom where the dad is 
a role model. Yeah. You know, yeah, just, nope, just make fun of him. He's Al Bundy. He's yep. Homer Simpson. And, um, and here we are in the 2000s, 2020s now, but we're seeing, you know, like we mentioned earlier, testosterone's declining rapidly. People are staying unmarried longer. They're having fewer kids. Mm-hmm. Families getting redefined. You know, I, I love looking at things in our culture. Um, you know, the, the, the sitcoms went from uh, things like The Cosby Show, yeah, which I'm not going to get into the real life Bill Cosby thing, but what that show depicted as a family and a lot of other shows depicted as a family before that. Leave it to Beaver, right? And, yeah. and then we get into the 90s, make fun of the dad. Families are dysfunctional. And then in the late 90s, early 2000s, something really interesting, the, the most popular show, Friends. No, no, let's just see if we can not do family at all. Yeah. We'll have a bunch of friends live in huh. the big city and they'll have oh, sex fun. with each other yeah. and with a bunch of other people and see if they can still be friends and see if they can find romance and see if it works. Yeah. And people loved it. They loved it. It was actually showing our culture what we were becoming and encouraging us to become more and more of that. And so now, like you said, what do we put our uh, some of our hope in? Where do we find a why? Progeny, family, relationships, well, that's all been under severe attack yeah. culturally, spiritually for quite some time. And I think a lot of people are completely unaware. It's And it's just shaped people. Like I have really great friends who are like, why would we get married in our 20s and have kids? Yeah. Oh, that seems, no, thank you. You know, maybe I'll get married in my 30s and maybe I'll have a kid. Maybe not. And, mm-hmm. you know. We see dual income, no kids, dinks. is like, that's a thing now for the last 10 years. And there's things on Instagram that like, they're bragging about how much better and more comfortable their life is. Yeah. And it's very, very interesting what that will do when for years, and I'm talking thousands of years, that was one of our whys as a people. You have a family, you find a tribe, you sacrifice for them and you do it again the next day. And you do it again the next day. And that makes suffering a little bit easier. Yep. And yep. it gives you a, a reason to suffer even. Yeah. So I, I wonder if you agree with some of that and if you've thought about that too. Yeah. So th- we've got this burden of consciousness and what we want to do is escape pain. And who can blame us? The trouble is we now have the means to literally do it. And we've got these godlike tools in our hands that actually do allow us to quite, quite literally escape pain. Um, but when you do that, you also escape meaning. And that was, that's another Chesterton's fence. We threw the baby out with the bathwater and we, we, uh, it's, it's tough cause it's a, it's a collective action problem, right? Because we, we are all liberals and I don't mean liberals in a left, right sense. I mean, in a Western sense, I mean, in the mm. philosophical sense, I mean, yeah. in the individualistic tabula rasa consent based morality, what I say goes where, you know, my rights are everywhere unless they run into someone else. So get out of my way. That is our religion, and we're not aware of it. It's the air we breathe, it's the water we swim in, and we need to all contend with that, Christian and non-Christian alike. We, you know, we, It's got some merits. We can all look at an abstraction like freedom, yeah, and say, actually, that's pretty great. We can all look at that, and we can say exploration, Faustian conquest. That's awesome, and it is, and it's very noble, um, and it's also very masculine. But man, with that comes, well, when we throw out unchosen bonds, and we say... No, I'm the arbiter of my own morality. I'm the arbiter of my own destiny. Mm. Well, don't be surprised when we don't play well together. And don't be surprised when you're lonely. And don't be surprised when someone has an idea that differs from yours. And what are you going to do about it? And here we are. Mm. So we've, we've, 
we've lost the notion that we are a link in an unbroken train that we need to pass on and tender with care. And instead we say, I am, I'm the, I'm the designer of my own life. Wow. Yeah. Let me let me let me go on another riff while I'm at it here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this go is ahead. a fun uh, right left hemisphere one I pitched you last summer. You might remember it. So, this is I, I'm listening to. I, I've become obsessed with this stuff, man. Like I, I, hours a day, I've got a pile of unread books, various podcasts, YouTube. So, one of the things I heard on a podcast about this was there's some researcher again, citation needed. Maybe it's garbage. Let's pretend it's not. He's doing research on the left and right hemispheres, and he's he's comparing the brains of civilized man and indigenous savage man, uncontacted tribes, or maybe just actually pretty preserved tribes. And what he's noticing is um, we moderns have hyper-powered, mega-powered left hemispheres. Our right hemispheres, we barely use. And what he noticed as the, the important variable to monitor there was literacy. He said, the second you teach someone how to read, that, hey, that's great. I mean, you, you've completed the Tower of Babel. We can communicate across time and across generation without error. We can go to the moon. We can build rockets. We're reaching towers to the sky. That's cool. Um, but what you've lost is memory. The second you see, teach someone to read, that, that uh, it, on, on your right hemisphere, it gets way weakened. And, and he found that these um, indigenous peoples, they had impeccable memories. You could tell them a story and they'd remember every single detail, hundreds of, of lines long. Um, he also, he hypothesizes at this point, and this is where it gets into the witchcraft territory, but I'm here for it. He hypothesizes that something else that's linked with that superpowered right hemisphere is not just a religious sensation, but contact with what you might call religious entities. You're more likely to dream dreams. You're more likely to see visions, to quote Joel here. Um, and so he hypothesizes these old stories that we find in these religious texts. We look back and we say, stupid cavemen. No, 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 man. What if they were seeing things that are equally real, even here and now, and you don't have the hardware to perceive it? What if consciousness isn't a speaker emitting things out into the ether? What if it's a receiver hearing things on the airways all around us that we don't even know are there? And and that, that makes you look back on something like the Bible in a hell of an interesting way, yeah. even as an atheist, because you got to understand our visible light spectrum is just a speck, man. We have no idea what's going on. We can't even measure the whole spectrum. And so I, I posit this. We look at an ancient person who says, he looks at the wind blowing in the trees and he says, my father's there. I see the spirit of my father. And we say, ah, stupid caveman. He doesn't even know the Pythagorean theorem. Oh, look at this guy. He says his dad's in the trees. Okay, what if we were to imagine that listen, you don't even know what you are, where you started, where you came from. That's part of the burden of consciousness. We don't know how any of this happened and we're just hypothesizing. Mm -hmm. Something in you came from something in your parents. Some memory, all of our cells replicate every seven years. That memory is a copy of a memory. Where did that memory come from in the first place? We don't even know. And so we, we, we could just as easily say, that man recognizes that there's something inside him that transcends time, that was gone before, but yep. is still present now. Yep. And he will pass on to someone else. And this goes all the way back into eternity because before time, there's not nothing, there's eternity. And after time, there's not nothing, there's eternity. This thing keeps going infinitely on and on. And that man looked at the tree and he said, I am a link in an unbroken chain. I'm reminded of that here because what was in my father is within me. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna handle this tenderly. I'm gonna handle it with care and I'm gonna pass this on to my kid. And one day I hope that he too sees 
sees me in the trees because I'll be there with him. And you say, wow, which Whoa, one's right? That's deep. Which one's right? They both are. You get to pick. We've got this Schrodinger's. I'm just preaching at this point. You want to talk about something? <laughs> That's great. No, Schrodinger's. Schrodinger's cat. Check this. So, so I've got this. I've got this harebrained idea, as most of them are at this point, of uh, Schrodinger's Christ. Mm-hmm. I mentioned yeah. the double slit experiment. Yep. The realm of religion and science they overlap. I think they're the same realm at this point. It's kooky, man. You shoot a photon through a screen. It emits a certain pattern. You can measure the filter on the back end and say, "Oh, it looks like a ball." Boop. Um, you shoot a photon uh, in a different way. I'm, I'm going to skip the details here. And it looks more like a, like a ray. And you can measure it there. And you say, oh, wow, that's interesting. Is a photon a particle or a, or a wave? That's curious. The act of observing the photon, if you put a camera or a human eye or anything during the process of the firing of the photon, the inverse of what's measured when the recorder is not there happens. And it happens not just on the filter, it happens backwards before it was shot too. There seems to be this link of the photon across time. You you do this action at X plus five and it somehow happened at X two. We're to the point where time travel is like measurable? It's bizarre. And so Schrodinger had this joke that ended up defining his career. He meant it as a, as a, as kind of a punchline, but um, he hypothesized, hey, if you put a cat under a box, it's both there and not there. It's dead and alive until you lift the box. You don't know, but you as the observer could be living a reality where you think the cat's alive and you go about and live your life as meaningfully and impactfully as possible as if the cat were still there. You had no idea it was dead. It could have been dead the whole time. Which reality are you living? I, this, this is the, the edgiest, edgy, crazy belief that, that I'm still working out, but I, I posit Schrodinger's Christ, which is if you take someone who, who knows Christ, let's ignore whether Christ was real, whether he was real in the way he said he was, whether he was God or whether he was at all. Let's set all that aside if you can, if you can bear with me. That woman's life is evidence that Christ was every bit as real. You can see it in her life. You saw it. Her belief made it so. She lived the Schrodinger's Christ life, and you can see the fruit of Christ in her life. We don't even know. Not really. We don't know. We think. We believe. We don't know what happened in the past, and yet the fruit is right there. Someone else could look at Christ and say, ah, not just a crazy person, or better yet, didn't exist at all. He will live his life, and you will see the fruit of his life as if Christ didn't exist at all. Now, that's not to say he was a bad person. I don't want to go any further than that. But you can see both a real and non-real um, evidence of this truth. And, and, and they're both existing at the same time. And where it gets really fun is if any of the Christians out there are willing to go so far as to entertain the very controversial idea of annihilationism. I, I posit further that you can even find a biblical basis for this belief. Um, but I'll maybe just put a pin in that one there. <laughs> but yeah, I, th- I think there's there's something to it. I think I think in a sense God is as real as we make Him, and y- you might contend that He's asking us, you know, who do you say that I am? Yeah, you know, that's so a fun sermon of yours. What I appreciate, yeah, yeah, what I appreciate about what you're saying there is that uh, our beliefs carry way more weight than we oftentimes think they do. Yeah, uh, and I I would speak that especially to Christians. Um, we 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 like to emphasize in most Christian circles, like, well, there's a real reality there, whether you admit it or not. And so you better should, you should just admit it. Um, what, what Ethan's saying with this Schrodinger's cat, Schrodinger's Christ thing is that you, your beliefs actually shape who you are. And if, if I can tie it to, you might be saying more than that, but, but the application I would give the audience is like, your beliefs matter. Um, 
for most of us, most of the time, way more than we think they do. Uh, and they shape how we think, how we talk, how we act, and how, even how we feel. And so if you're someone who chooses to believe, no, the Christ was nothing, Jesus wasn't real, he's not divine, I put no hope or faith in him, Like your life will look a certain way. And if you're someone who really, truly believes, not just intellectually acknowledges, but like you believe it every day, it's a core why of yours. Like your life will look a certain way. Um, and then there's more I could say about that, but you, you mentioned annihilationism. What is annihilationism, Ethan? I don't know if everybody knows that term. Oh, sure. Yeah. So um, you can correct me on this. You'll, you'll surely be able to fill any gaps if I get this wrong, but it's essentially the idea that the eternal death mentioned by Christ and perhaps even elsewhere if we're to consider Sheol in the Old Testament sense, but yeah. firmly we can say the New Testament idea of what happens in the afterlife if you're not going to heaven. What if, you know, the, the, the easy idea that pervades the culture is that it's an eternal lake of hellfire where after a million years of infinite suffering, you're no closer to the day it will end than you are to the day it began. In fact, it will go on forever. Yep. And annihilationism says, wait, what if it's not that? And then I would say underneath that, there are categories of possible annihilationism. One, Just to pick the easiest one could be, I would draw your attention to the analogy Christ gives, I think in the book of, book of Luke on uh, the Tower of Siloam, when his apostles come up and say, hey, there's this rebellion and all that. And he, he basically says, yeah, you know, the, the end... Uh, will be like that. And he, he says a tower is going to fall on him. He also mentions a revolt where a bunch of Jews get put down. Um, and neither of those are eternal events like the lake of fire. So again, not to create a straw man, there's a lot of evidence for the lake. I mean, the lake of fire is real. It's right there. You know, And eternity is mentioned, but you could, you could pick apart some of the meanings of those words. And I think there are some interesting thoughts or at least conversations to be had, even if they're not fully convincing. Yeah. So tell me more about these recapitulations you've mentioned, where you've seen Christ in the Old Testament, where you've seen things, and you even mentioned like, well, in in Hindu, there's three gods, right? Like this, depending you, on the Hindu you ask. Well, yeah, that's, that's a, the interesting, that's interesting, thing interesting thing too, yeah, right? I, it's a very interesting <laughs> religion because I've talked to Hindus too, and I've read some stuff where, yeah, you could be a Hindu and not believe in a god. You could be a Hindu and believe in one god. Yes. You could be a Hindu and believe in many gods. So I'm like, oh, what is, what is Hinduism? That's an interesting question. You want, hey, something interesting about Hinduism. There are, uh, there are two, there's a patriarch and a matriarch in Hinduism. One is named Brahma and the other is named Sarai. Oh, that sounds a lot like Abraham and Sarah. Have you heard, yeah, again, take just one of these and you're a crazy man. Stack a few hundred of them on top of each other. There's this weird pattern, man. There's a, there's a pattern, and well, yes. I would. Be, I, okay, so I would jump in and say, I please agree, do. I agree that it, when we see in other religions some sort of incarnation of a, of a god or a deity, I would say that's cool. That that shows for me. I think that's evidence of a human longing for something divine to come down to us. Um, I wouldn't say that that discredits uh, Jesus Christ as, as a firm believer in Christianity as I mean like I'm thinking of guys like you know Augustine and Chesterton and like yeah that that is evidence that the human soul longs for the divine to incarnate and come and walk among us the only real historical evidence we have for that actually happening is most 
best found in the Christian narrative, which is based in history, not just longings and philosophies, although there's a lot of longing and there's a lot of great philosophy in the Christian tradition. Um, so there and mine, a, you know, argument against the historical validity of some of that is like, show me the proof in the pudding. You know, whereas in Christianity, we I think we have some really great historical proof in the pudding for the existence uh, and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, but I would just look at, you know, I know there's Egyptian gods, I know there's Hindu gods, I know there's other religions where there's been an incarnation, and I would say that is awesome in the sense that it shows our longing for God or a God to come and walk among us. Uh, that's That would be my counter argument to your no, point. And please do. And I'll even add to your argument invoking uh, the Pauline verse. You can help me out here. He gives something about how uh, creation is a testament to, to even those who yeah, that's, fill in the gaps for me. You're here. probably talking Romans 1. You sure. know, creation itself yes. is a witness or a testament to people. So yeah. therefore, man is without excuse. Yes. No one's going to stand before God and say, I never read your Bible. I never heard of your Jesus, therefore I'm good. You can't, uh, I'm not, I'm not a sinner. I don't deserve any justice or righteousness or punishment. What Paul says is like, no, no, no one's without excuse because we've all seen creation. You've all seen the sunrise. You've all, well, I would say stars, but to your point earlier, maybe not enough of us have seen stars, but we've all looked at something in creation, even if it's just the birth of a newborn baby. And we've been caught up in this like wonder and like, oh, there's something there's someone out there and i am not worthy and i need i need that someone <laughs> and i sh- i should be humble and i should seek that out um so that i think that's a lot of what paul's getting at there is like hey no one's without excuse and further it gives us as christians a motivation like we need to go tell people we need to actually be witnesses we can't say this kind of this soft universalism of like ah you know it's those those unreached people out there or that, that that group out there that's never heard like we don't need to tell them the gospel no we we do we do uh they're without any excuse and they need to know the name of that someone who brings to them that wonder and that awe and that sense of like humility should they be paying attention to it so, but then he says even harder words in Romans 2 against people who have, mostly Jewish, you know, he's talking to the Jewish people, people who have the law, people who have the Old Testament, people who have the Torah. It's like, you're even more without excuse because you actually have this stuff. Your ancestors experience it and walk through it. So, Paul's using Romans 1 and 2 and the first part of chapter 3 to basically say, y'all need Jesus. <laughs> like, if I were to say a modern translation, like, nobody yeah. has any other hope outside of that. Um, so you're right, though. That's Romans 1. Creation is uh, one of the testifying things. Uh, the, the written word is also another testifying thing. So, yeah, there's, there's witnesses that are trying to get our attention and turn us toward God. Um, what, what would you... What else would, did you want to say about some of these recapitulations and yeah, things yeah, like right. that? Yeah, yeah, right. So what, what I've... I, I, I tore through the Bible, man. Uh, it, it, again, has captivated me. And I saw it in a way I never saw it as a Christian. I, I knew the Bible pretty well as a Christian, and I was so humbled in how badly I knew it because when I, when I gave it another spin, um, it just leapt off the page. I couldn't get enough. Um, if anyone is looking for a tip on how to do it, because it is daunting, I, I would highly recommend reading it in order 
quickly. Um, don't, and, and if you want to pause and like look at maybe a supplementary material, if you get stuck on something interesting, please do, but keep going. Because audio, audio helps audio, too. Oh, I, audio I, helps. I got myself into this habit where I would, I would wake up at the crack of dawn and I, I mean like 2 AM. I, I wasn't even setting an alarm. I would, uh, I'd wake up at two every Saturday. I'd go make myself a cup of coffee. I would play some Madden before anyone else was up. <laughs> I would pop my earbuds in. And I would just listen to the Bible on audiobook, go right through. And I caught so much thematically, repetitiously, that I never did as a Christian. And I think I think to anyone who wants to be a student of the Bible, you gotta catch on to these themes. I think that's as much or more meaningful than the than the explicit text. There's something very mysterious going on here that I think is truly inspired. I think it it leapt out of the authors. I think it was carefully curated over oral tradition that people did not sit down and discuss. But then I think afterwards they actually did sit down and discuss it. So it's it's this organic thing that's also been refined in this very interesting dialectic. Um, and it's fascinating when you see things more often than once. Yeah. I'll just... Uh, the, the The punchline to this is that Christ recapitulates everything you see. And I'm embarrassed to think that in my Christian days, I, I didn't catch that. Obviously, the whole Bible points towards the Messiah, at least if you're a Christian. Um, but, uh, you know, how did I not catch? You could just take, obviously, there's there's Joseph in the pit and then Peter saying that, you know, Jesus descended to. Um, you get him, of course, being the sacrificial lamb, obviously, the Day of Atonement there as well. Yeah. Okay, and then, but, but let's take, you get Jonah, the sign of the whale. He even calls that out in Matthew, I think. All right. Um, Moses is an interesting one. This is really interesting. So Moses, you have the massacre of the innocents, both in his day, Egypt, and then in Christ's day, Herod. You have the flight to Egypt, just to really drive the point home in case you didn't catch it. <laughs> Where are you going? You're going to escape to Egypt? Where have I seen Egypt before? You get um, this, this water occurring. You get Christ as a master of water, he walks on water. You get Moses as a master of water. He parts the seas. He pulls it out of rocks. You get um, the Nile turning to blood. You get water into wine. Yeah. It's fascinating. Look at uh, look at Moses's mother compared to the Madonna, the archetypal feminine, right? The feminine can do interesting things as an archetype. It can be the devouring mother, consuming your children, never letting them go. Or it can be the Madonna who nurtures her child, but eventually makes the hardest decision of her life, which is, I'm going to let you go, even to your own slaughter. Mm -hmm. And that's Mary watching Christ get crucified, her her son. It's also the the mother of Moses giving up her child, but not getting out of the way. Yeah. Not entirely, because her sister's watching, his sister's watching. Yeah. And then you see, you see uh, Pharaoh, his daughter, come in and save him. And then the sister knows, oh, wait, do you need? Do you need a wet nurse? I know someone. Oh, it's her mom. How about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so you see the same theme with Mary there too. I'm um, maybe grasping at some straws there, but anyways, I will wrap this soliloquy up by saying: um, see the pattern. It's most evident in Christ, but man, it's everywhere. I, I think I threw out the uh, the instruments of Gideon and the instruments of Revelation. They show up there too. Yeah. You could do this till the cows come home. Hundreds, hundreds, and when you catch on to those symbols, symbols are very, very powerful tools. Very Jungian tools. They speak to us directly to the subconscious. They go right into our unconscious instead of trying to write a little essay and convince you about it. They strike you in a place. When you read the Bible symbolically and you catch on to everything that's going on, you start to see it in a totally new frame. It also helps you remember it. And that, my friends, is Ethan's Astro. <laughs> We're going to take a brief pause here 
And we're going to come back next week with round two. We're going to try and take some of these big, big ideas. We'll we'll readdress them a little bit, and then we're going to make them more practical for you. So I hope you enjoyed some of these philosophical, theological, big stuff. Uh, tune in next time, round two, the brothers not the brothers Karamazov. We got to title this the brothers Zastrov or <laughs> Love something. It. Love it. <laughs> and we'll uh, we'll talk about. All right then. Cool. If some of this is something that I agree with, some of this is something I disagree with. What next? How then shall we live? See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>